Uh, let's talk about uh, what we're doing here in this class. First of all, if you are not on the Church Center app, I would highly encourage you to get on it. Um, is there an easy way to tell everyone that they can download? Oh, there's a scan back there, right? Uh, if you scan the QR code, you can do that after the class or whatever. And the top one, uh, you can join the class through the app. Uh, if you have not joined the class here, this is writing session two. Turn over your app. Otherwise, they'll join the Bruce in the class. Oh. There you go. Yeah. So the top one. Uh, Scratch that. So you can scan that uh, and then uh, join through the app. And I would highly encourage you to do that. Um, the, the app gives you uh, a couple of, uh, well, first of all, it helps us because we get to know who's coming and all that, but um, secondly, it helps you because number one, you get additional resources. Uh, there's a couple additional resources this week, but um, uh, if I didn't print something out and bring it, then you can get those things on the app. And there's a couple different things that I put on the app that are not uh, here as printouts. Um, so those are for additional reading um, that you might find interesting or helpful as we're studying through the writings. The other thing is you can uh, sign up to bring snacks. Um, there's snacks here in the back, so whoever brought those, thank you, and some of them are left over from the first class. Um, so I'd encourage you to uh, do that if you wanna uh, bring snacks here uh, the next five weeks after today. So, um, okay, let's, before we jump into the writings at all, uh, I would like to go around the room, and if everyone could, uh, by family unit, could you have somebody uh, just introduce yourself and just br very briefly, how long have you been coming to New Community Church? Okay, so I'll start. My name's Mark. My wife over here uh, on the side is Sarah. And we've, uh, I just I just correctly remember this, I think. We've been coming to NCC for almost 16 years now. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're old timers for this this church. Yeah, uh, half, the, half the existence of the church we've been here, so... Um, yeah, so that's us. So go here. Um, I'm Nick Carper, and it's my wife Lisa, and we've been visiting here a couple months. Oh, good. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, Gerald Ellington, it's my wife Marilyn, my mother-in-law Young, and uh, we've been coming here for about eight years, nine. I have no idea. <laughs> Sounds about right. Something about right. <laughs> I'm Dan Adams, my wife Teresa, and we've been coming for two years. Okay. Uh, Bill Boyd, my wife is Liz, and she's in uh, Sunday school, uh, middle school Sunday school, uh -huh. and uh, we've been coming about three years. Three years, okay. Nathan? Nathan Ross, my wife Kayla, she's working over in the nursery today. Uh, we've been here about three and a half years. Okay. Eric? Uh, Eric Crane. I have uh, grew up, grew up here basically, but uh, went away for college, been back for uh, five years now. Cold time flies. Yeah. <laughs> Bob? I'm Bob, and this is my wife Kim. I don't know, I guess maybe 15. We're trying to, we're trying to figure it out. Okay. <laughs> we have two different times, but something like that. I, 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 okay. I don't know exactly what that means. <laughs> Ruben? Ruben, and my wife uh, is helping in Sunday school. Um, we've been attending here for 13, 13 months. 13 months. That's a good clarification. <laughs> <laughs> that was cute. What's wrong? 
hello, my name is Sir Ron. Um, I've been attending uh, NCC for about three, four months now. Uh, my wife also was attending initially, but she has some visa issue. We're originally from the Philippines, and, and the plan is for her to come next year. For you. I'm Jerry Vanderheim. This is my wife Deborah. We've been here about three and a half years. Okay, thanks. Jeff. Jeff Till, my wife Kelly. We've been coming uh, for about nine years now. Okay. Mike Fink, uh, been about six years, seven years. Okay. Uh, Sean Ray, Jana, my wife. We've been coming six years this, this summer. Okay. Um, Yvonne Noel, my husband's Todd, and we've been here eight years. I'm Rainy Compton. I've been here from the beginning. Meet us all. 30 years. Wei and my wife Wen, we've been here for a little bit over a year. Jeannie Grender, I've been here about three years. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Um, I know that's not fun for the introverts, but um, it's helpful for all of us to know uh, who everybody is and how long you've been here. Um, so welcome. Uh, this is uh, the writings, uh, session two. Uh, I will, uh, if you are worried that you're coming in in the middle, that's okay. You're coming in the middle of the whole Old Testament. That's all right. I'm going to do a review of everywhere we've come from since last spring and uh i don't know um there's only a few of you who've been here the whole year so don't worry about it people come in at all all different times so um uh let me talk about uh what we're doing here uh this is um a bible overview class so this uh fits into a certain uh have you asked alex about how where this fits into um certain uh, program of curriculum here for our quick classes. Um, but uh, this is part of, um, uh, again, just a part of the larger program of walking through the Bible. Um, the key thing to know is that what we do in this class is um, different than what you would have in uh, the service with Rich, right? We're not going to be doing detailed exegesis on a passage for 40 minutes, right? That's not what we're doing here. We're doing a overview, a 30,000 foot view of these books. And um, for instance, a few weeks ago, we did the Psalms in two weeks, okay? So that's, you know, like 75 Psalms a week, right? So uh, really, I'm, my main intention is to um, help you understand how to read the Old Testament. That's really the main intention. So you can go and study on your own in more detail and um, honestly, so when you're studying the New Testament, you can have a background and understanding of what they're re referring back to because the New Testament is constantly moving back and forth uh, with the Old. So um, at times, this will feel like, uh, you know, we have a big fire hose and it's going right in your face, right? We're going quickly through it. Uh, there are times when we will stop down and uh, read a passage or, you know, just try to really get to the heart of, what is the author trying to say? And then we'll kind of open it up for, um, for people to share how this can, can really have a significance for our own lives. Okay, so we will do that a couple times every week. Um, it's not just study, um, but it, there is some application as well. Okay, so um, why do we study it? Why are we studying the writings? Um, 
why what am I why am I calling this the writings? What in the world are we talking about there? Well, uh, you have one handout which is um, oh, where do I have here? Got it here somewhere. Uh, well, it's the order of the Old Testament, right? Uh, if you have that handout, you can see that there are some uh, different orders there. So if you turn to Luke chapter 24, this is the one time we'll be in the New Testament today, I think. Actually, I don't want to handicap myself. Maybe it's the only time. Yeah. All right, Luke 24. This is a resurrected Jesus speaking to his disciples. So uh, in many ways, you could consider this the, uh, the climax of all of history, right? Resurrected Jesus walking around now teaching his disciples what they're supposed to think about the most significant moment in history. Um, and so starting in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So um, what we have here is uh, a gospel in the gospel of Luke. The gospel message is connected to the Old Testament message, right? And he's suggesting that, okay, you can kind of think of this as we're reading this. This New Testament is connected to this Old Testament. Now, what does he describe here? He says, everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What he's describing there is the order of the Old Testament there in Judea at the time. This, was, this would have been uh, the order of the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Bible that the Hebrews used. Um, and there's a couple different kind of textual traditions, and you can kind of see that on the handout. There's the Tanakh, there's the Septuagint, and then the English versions, which we have. Well, um, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's called the Septuagint because there is, it's the number 70, um, and the thought was it was commissioned uh, in Egypt by a leader in Egypt to... Um, you know, translate it by 70 translators, okay? Now, that's a lot of that is legend and all this, but that's why it's called the Septuagint, okay? So it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, but they reordered it. You can see that if, you walk, if you're following it down the, the list. Um, some of the prophets got uh, moved to later. Um, some of the uh, writings got moved in other places. Some of the poetic material like Ruth and Esther, got moved up. Um, so they took the Hebrew Bible and reordered it. Okay, But what uh, Jesus is referring to here in Luke 24 is the Hebrew Bible at the time. This is more of a Babylonian text tradition. Uh, when the um, people were exiled, uh, they were still studying the Word of God, right? And they were collecting these, um, uh, these texts together in these scrolls. And they had this ordering that uh, came through. And so you see Jesus referring to that. This is actually the same Hebrew Bible that the Pharisees would have used. And so, you know, Jesus and the Pharisees are having debates. They're not having debates about which is the right Bible, right? They're mm -hmm. having debates about interpretation. Um, and uh, 
uh, of course, the Pharisees adding things to the Bible, right? Uh, but they're not, they're not having debates about the order of the Bible because everyone agreed on the order. It's this order that Jesus refers to right here. So that's, it's called the Hebrew Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, um, because that's a, um, a word that Tanakh is T-N-K, means Torah, Nevelim, and Ketuvim. Okay, so Torah is the first five books, or the Pentateuch. We call it the Pentateuch often. Um, the uh, uh, Nevelim means um, prophets. That's what that means. Prophets in Hebrew, Nevelim. And then uh, the third section is the writings, Ketuvim, um, which means writings. So that's why we study the writings here in these two sessions. Okay, this is the third section of the Hebrew Bible, and uh, the reason I want to study it or I'm teaching it in this order is because Jesus here refers to this order when speaking about um, its fulfillment in him, okay? And I think there's actually a, a real intention behind the order to speak about the Messiah, okay? So um, to lay in the plane here, it's all the same books. You can look through the order here. You can, you can audit it. It's all the same material, okay? Septuagint did some different things. They shortened Jeremiah, stuff like that, but um, it's all the same books, okay? Um, it's just in a different order. Now, our English Bibles followed the... Septuagint ordering, uh, but use the Masoretic text, which was the full Hebrew Bible. Uh, they just, again, they followed the Septuagint ordering in the Christian tradition. So um, that is why we're studying the writings in this particular way. That's why, okay, wh why, what's writings? Why is he doing that? Why doesn't he say historical books or poetic books or whatever? Actually, we're studying it in the way that Jesus taught his, his own disciples. So any questions about that? Uh, why we're doing it this way, why we're, why we've gone in this order this entire time. Okay, um, so go ahead and grab that other handout, which is interpretation. We're going to talk about this real quick, and then once we talk about interpretation, we're going to talk about some interpretive tools that we're going to be using as we go through and study the text. We're going to spend about half the time on this before we jump into some of the writings today. Um, but we're going to talk about this, and then I will kind of help you try to understand, okay, well, how do these tools help us read the entirety of the Hebrew Bible? Uh, and that's what I have up here on the board. That's what we've been going through since the beginning last spring, okay? So, um, Again, I said it was 30,000 foot view. That's what I'm trying to help you with, right? How does it fit into the overall story, uh, the overall storyline of Scripture? Okay? Um, so let's jump into interpretation. Um, this is a modified version of, if you were here for the first six weeks, um, we did this the first week for the full session. This is a, just a half of it. So I'm going to kind of fly through some of the basics here. Um, you see this first section under interpretation says meaning and significance. So this is going to get a little nerdy here, but I'll try to make it somewhat interesting if I can. Um, uh, so number one, meaning is what is in the text itself. It is what the author intended by the words. Discovering the authorial intent of a passage will lead one to meaning. 
part of this process is determining what literary genre the author chose to use. Taking into account this choice will aid in determining authorial intent and therefore meaning. So literary genre, I mean like poetry or prose, right? I mean, when we study the Psalms, we study that a little bit differently than we would, um, you know, the Kings, which is more narrative. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by literary genre, narrative versus epistle when you're talking about the New Testament, right? So um, uh, what do I mean, though, by authorial intent of a passage? I don't mean, um, I think this, this, we get into this in evangelicalism a lot, but uh, what I don't mean is the psyche of the author, right? Like, uh, my, my intention is not like um, someone like, if you've ever heard of the scholar N.T. Wright, he's very obsessed with the story of whoever the author is, right? So if he's trying to interpret uh, Romans, he wants to know everything about Paul's background and how he grew up and you know, Second Temple Judaism, living in that time, and that he was this and he was that before he wrote the book and all this. That's not what I mean by authorial intent. What I mean by authorial intent is the textual intention. What is he trying to say in this actual text? And in other words, I would say, um, in my view, if we, you know, take a difficult passage like Romans 7, um, if we could somehow bring Paul back from the dead and we had an hour to talk to him about Romans 7. Um, my first question is not going to be, what was it like growing up in Second Temple Judaism? What was that like? No, I want to know what Romans 7 is. Let's talk about the text. What were you saying, right? So um, anyway, so that, that's, that's not what I mean. I, I mean the textual intention. What is he trying to say? Now, the point of this, though, is that we can't make it say whatever we want, right, as the reader. That's not where the meaning is. The meaning's not in our own experience with the text. It's in what he's trying to say, what is in the textual intention. Now, um, this, uh, I, you've probably seen this joke before if you've uh, been in a class with me, but this highlights the, the issue here, right? Um, I went to Texas A&M. I'm an Aggie, a uh, big school down in Texas. Um, and uh, this is a very popular t-shirt down there. Um, of course, our, one of our rivals is the University of Texas, the Longhorns, and this has, you know, sawed off horns, and the quote says, uh, from Psalm 7510, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked. Now, I would, I, as an Aggie, I would love for this to be a proper interpretation of Psalm 7510, right? Uh, this actually is not a proper interpretation of Psalm 7510. I would love that to be the case, but it's not, right? Because I'm, I'm trying to make this, uh, through my own experience, I'm sort of trying to see this through my own lens, right? Instead of mm -hmm. what, what is actually the psalmist trying to say when, he's, when he actually writes Psalm 75, okay? Um, so that's a very basic humorous um, uh, kind of illustration of how that works, okay? So we're talking about authorial intent. Uh, number two there, although there is only one meaning of a text, the author may have intended multiple implications within that meaning. The implications are simply various points within the meaning. Any implication of a text is a slave to Meaning. So, uh, what I mean by that is we've got a, uh, if, if meaning is driven by the author's intention, by the communication, communicative action of the author when he writes, that means there is just the one meaning. Now, there may be some 
implications within that, if it's all, you know, you take a passage like the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, there's, there's a lot there, right? Um, there's, you know, making disciples and there's baptizing and there's teaching them to obey all our command. There's all these different kind of little implications or little meanings within the larger point of the passage, right? But they're all consistent with each other. They all work with the overall meaning of that text, okay? So there could be multiple implications, but they're all consistent with each other. They're all part of that one meaning, okay? Uh, number three there. In God's sovereignty, he selected leaders, prophets, apostles, etc., to write scripture. The authors knew that their writings could be read by many, not just the original audience. Therefore, the implied reader of Scripture is anyone willing to submit themselves to God's authority. This is important when we're studying the Old Testament, well, the, um, Scripture in general, um, because um, these texts are primarily theological. Okay, That's their primary intention. Do they record real history? Yes, I believe they do. I'm an evangelical Christian. That means I believe in the authority inerrancy of the text. I believe they're recording real events that really happened. Um, but their primary intention is to teach you, the reader, theology. That's their intention. So when uh, you know, you're know using something like an extreme example is um, when he's using Paul to write the letter to the Ephesians. Um, does that have a particular occasion and some particular things going on that he's writing to the Ephesians about, yes. But Paul knew he was an apostle. So even if he maybe didn't necessarily know that the, the letter to the Ephesians was, was scripture, he still knew that there was a very likely that his letter would be read by other churches, that it might be passed around. So um, he's writing in a way that teaches who's ever reading it something about God, something about the gospel. Um, and, you know, a great example of this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which goes into, well, I don't know, fairly significant amount of detail about uh, a man in the church at Corinth who uh, needed to be thrown out of the church. And it goes into detail about why it should happen, and he tells you the theological reason why it should happen. Um, if it's really just a letter to the church at Corinth dealing with church business, why doesn't he just say the guy's name? Hey, this guy, out of the church, then move on to the next thing. He doesn't do that because he knows his letter may be read and passed around and learned by others, right? We don't even get the guy's name. We get the exact, we get who he is through the text, what he did, and then the, the, the theological teaching there. That's what we get. So uh, that's my point there. These, these texts, they describe real events, but their primary purpose is theological, okay? Their, their purpose is to teach. Okay, so number four. Significance is how a text relates to something else, like the reader's own situation. Significance involves application of meaning to one's own life. It is the meaning's contemporary relevance. <laughs> so that's why I say a couple times a week we'll stop down and really deal with significance. Try to open it up, ask some questions. How does it, how do we apply this to our lives? What do you think about this? You know, we'll. We'll, we'll try to really apply and, um, and talk about our own lives and how, how they connect. 
um, to the text. Okay, so uh, number five kind of gets into the relationship here. Significance can change, meaning cannot. There's only one meaning for a text, but there can be multiple significances. However, a proper significance can only be understood when meaning is understood. So, um, uh, take going back to the Great Commission passage, uh, I might apply that passage, although there is just the one meaning, I might apply that passage a little differently than you might, right? Um, I might, you know, give to this missionary, you might give to a different one, right? Or, or you might, you know, for, for Sarah and I, we adopted a kid from India, right? That was an application of the Great Commission for our uh, for, for us in our particular situation. Um, it also can change based on um, the timing, right? I mean, um, uh, the, the globalization of uh, the gospel, uh, the proclamation of the gospel, the fulfillment of the Great Commission looks a lot different now than it did a thousand years ago, right? We have media and planes and, you know, I mean, it just looks a lot different. So the application of that text looks different and the significance has changed but again the meaning is still the same it's still the same theological truth and command that christ gives uh, to his disciples so you can see this visually if you're a visual learner like i am um, there in the middle of the page you can think of this as reading the text when you're reading it you want to determine the authorial intent that leads you to the meaning again there may be some multiple implications within that meaning and then once you've learned the meaning, then you can start applying it to your life. Okay, that's really the way to study scripture. Uh, too often in church here in America, we have, um, you go from text all the way to the right, right? You read the text and then what does this mean to you, right? Instead of actually studying the text, what is the author really trying to say, okay? So, um, B, steps and in interpretation. Uh, this is important for understanding uh, as we go through the Old Testament steps in interpretation. Number one, what does it say? That means reading the text, read it, read it, read it, read it a lot. Um, uh, also, the more Greek or Hebrew you know, the better, um, certainly. Uh, that's a, that's, that fits into the what does it say uh, question. Then two, what does it mean? That's this question of meaning. Then three, what does it mean in relation to Christ and the New Covenant? I believe that's also meaning. Uh, again, these are primarily theological texts, and all of these, I'm going to try to help you see that as we're reading through them, all of these texts point to the future coming of the Messiah and the New Covenant. They all point to that. So that's also part of meaning. That's part of the author's intention. And then number four, then what does it mean to me? So that's... Uh, when we think about steps in interpretation, that's what we want to be doing. Okay, so the center, C, does Scripture have a central theme? How can we determine what it is? Now, if, if the texts are primarily theological, as I'm proposing, then it is possible uh, that there would be a central theme. Um, in other words, if it's... Um, you know, one way you can think of this is here. I think a lot of a lot of folks in Christendom think of the Old Testament this way, right? It's a bunch of texts, just you know, 30, 39 different, thirty-seven different many texts, uh, just thrown together haphazardly, right? They're all different colors, and they're just oh, they're just kind of collected together, but they don't really have a whole lot to say that's unified, okay? Um, but 
if there is, if their purposes are theological, then it's possible that they all have the same theological purpose and therefore would have a center. Um, so how can we determine what it is? Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, that scripture, including the Old Testament, is about him. So in order to see what he is talking about, we have to take some important interpretive tools into consideration. Okay, so we'll talk about um, a couple things here, uh, D, E, and F. These are important tools for studying uh scripture and seeing an overall purpose or a center of scripture okay so uh, e, uh d there text versus event the scripture may be special revelation but where exactly is this revelation located if the location is in the event described in the text then the text is only important in that it accurately portrays the historical event So, um, uh, so basically what I'm getting at here is what is the purpose of Scripture? Um, a, a great example of this is um, the last 50 years there's been this push in New Testament scholarship for uh, the search for the historical Jesus. And you got all these uh, historical critical scholars who get together and they get together a few months or whatever and they have this like big jar and um, they have, all have marbles, and they go through different passages in the, in the Gospels, and they say, okay, who thinks this passage is authentic? And then the scholars will put the marbles. Whoever thinks they're real passages that really describe what really happened, they'll put the marbles in the, in the big bowl, right? Okay, so that's, that's one example. That, for, for that perspective, the purpose of the text is to discover who the real Jesus is, the historical Jesus, right? Now, that's a critical look at it. Um, there's also just, you know, more honest look at um, it from that same perspective. And one example of this is about 30 years ago, Peter Jennings did this big series on the search for the historical Jesus. And he went to Jerusalem and he talked to experts and he walked around Jerusalem and he, he said, well, you know, this could have been the road that he took uh, going up to Calvary. This could have been where Calvary was. and Really interesting, right? But um, uh, my point here is, is that that's not the point of studying the scriptures, right? Mm -hmm. this, we're, that's not our primary intention when we study the scriptures, is to try to discover the historical Jesus. Our primary intention is to read and learn the biblical Jesus, which is uh, a, a revelation to us about who we should follow and, um, and love and, and submit to. Now, is the historical Jesus also the biblical Jesus? Yes, yes, absolutely. I absolutely believe everything described in the Gospels is describing the real historical Jesus. But this gets into the, the, the real distinction here, uh, the rest of this paragraph here. However, although the Bible is inerrant and describes real events as they happen, the location of the revelation is in the text itself. This, that is the authoritative revelation for the reader. So in other words, let me, let me say this, try to say it very simply here. The scriptures are not just a retelling of revelation. They are the revelation themselves. Right? The text itself is the revelation for us. So um, you think about like um, uh, 2,000 years ago, if you were there, 
and you're at Calvary and you see Christ die and the heavens open up and the veil is torn, that's revelation for you right there. Like those people that were there, that is absolutely revelation from God to you telling you the gospel, right? Um, but we're not there. We're 2,000 years later. Our special revelation is on the page. It's in the words. It's in the gospels. It's in the text, right? So uh, it's important to realize that, right? Our mission when we're studying the text is not to, okay, we read it, and then, oh, let me, let me get behind it and try to figure out try to re reorganize or reconstruct what really happened. No, our, our purpose is just read it and see what are they trying to teach us. Let's pay attention to these kind of um, compositional comments that they make, right? Um, uh, the very opening pages of scripture, uh, God creates woman, and then it says there, that is why a, uh, um, a woman leaves their parents and comes cleave to a husband, right? That's, he explains what this is happening, right? He makes a comment. Moses makes an editorial comment, right? There's a, something that happened, it's described, and then there's an editorial comment. So if you so focused on the event, you're going to miss the comments, right? You're going to miss the purpose. It's, these words are our revelation, and that's what we need to pay attention to. Another example is like, if you think about... Um, <coughs> Uh, a, a famous painting like Rembrandt or something who paints a tree, right? And in the, the tree, you know, this painting is worth $3 million because it's just amazing the way he presents it, all the, all the strokes and just the presentation of it. It's just an amazing painting. Now, maybe that tree had some real inspiration, right? Like a real tree that he saw one day. Now, if I go and I find that tree that he, that he, he painted, and I take a Polaroid of it, if I come to you and I say, now give me $3 million, what are you going to say, right? <laughs> the, the value is not in the, that I found the actual thing. The value is in the way that he presents the story, right? That's where the value is. So that's another illustration, right? doesn't mean there's not a real tree. doesn't mean there's, that there, there's not a connection between the painting and the tree that's important. Um, just means that I need to be paying attention to the way he's presented this tree. That's where the value comes in. Okay, that's another illustration on that. All right. So um, next, next little thing here: uh, three stages of scripture formulation. Uh, let's see. Um, three stages of scripture formulation: one, composition; two, canonization; and three, consolidation. Uh, what I'm really just talking about here is, um, you know, we're talking about the Old Testament here. Um, today we're going to study Lamentations and Esther. Um, there, there was a composition at a time, and we'll talk about when these were written, right? That's, that's what I'm talking about. The original writing is the composition, right? Um, then the canonization is when it starts to be read in the synagogues. Right? Someone recognizes this is authority. This is from God. We need to be reading this out loud and sharing this with others and passing it around and collecting it together. Right? Um, we saw in the, the Psalms when we studied that a few weeks ago, there's 150 of them. A lot of them are written all kinds of different times. Right? Some of them weren't written by David. Sometimes they were written far, far later. But they start being collected into these five sections. And they start being read in the synagogues that way. They're part of a long, long scroll, right? So that's the second phase I'm talking about is canonization. 
They recognize that they're authoritative and they start using them as a textual community, right, in the synagogues. Uh, and then the third one is setting the final form for generations to come. That's when it becomes part of the Hebrew Bible, right? We got these three big sections. Someone starts publishing it in a larger work. That's setting it for uh, generations to come. So now we here in 2024 in Wildwood, we get to study this because this, this phase happened. It was collected together as part of a larger uh, connected message call you know what we can call now calls the Old Testament right so that's uh, that's what I mean by consolidation now what I would say is that all of these are under the Holy Spirit's authority right he worked sovereignly through this so that we could be here and study this in this way so that's awesome all right so just that's just something to be thinking about as we're studying through this and then uh, the last one there important devices used number one is intertextuality this is where an author makes a connection to truth discussed previously in the same book um, uh, one example of this you can look at this later Matthew 14 19 through 20 and then Matthew 26 26 I think I think Matthew himself is making a reference back to an earlier just by using the same language two different things that are happening he's using um, Anyway, I'll let you look up that yourself. Uh, Matthew 14, yeah, Matthew 14, 19 through 20, and then Matthew 26, 26. So it, this is this is what any author does, right? They make a connection to an earlier. I mean, a, this John Grisham writing a novel. They're gonna uh, make connections later in the book that they did. You know, chapter six is gonna make a connection back to chapter two, right? This is this is a, a device that an author uses. Now, intertextuality is the second one intertextuality. This is where an author makes a connection to truth discussed in a previous book of scripture. And Matthew is another great example of someone who does this a lot. Uh, the first couple chapters of Matthew is fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy. He's connecting what's happening right there to earlier works of scripture. That's intertextuality. Okay. And then number three is contextuality. Context and then duality which is a placement of a passage or a book in a particular order in the Bible, right? I mean, that John Grisham example, you can't understand really what's happening in chapter 6 unless you've read chapter 2, right? It's, it's, it's placed in an order for a reason. You can also think of, like, um, this concept of montage in a movie, right? You're, you're watching the movie through. If you watch the end of the movie and then go back to the beginning, you're not really going to understand. Or if you read the end of a book and... Um, I'm not going to out anybody here that does read the end of the book before they. But um, if you read the end of the book, <laughs> that's not the way it's meant to be read, right? Your contextuality is placed in a certain order so that you can you can read it a certain way. Okay, so um, so that is that is the these are the important devices that that we need to use um, or or think about. Uh, as we're studying the scriptures, so Mark was number one intra, intra yeah, uh, inter, 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 oh, inter, 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 I-N-N-E-R, and then number two is inter. So just really, I mean, they're, they're words by, um, herm, yeah, hermeneutical, you know, guys that come come up with these words, but you're really just trying to make the distinction, like it's all within scripture, but one might be within the composition that's inner. And then one might be referencing an earlier work within the canon that would be inter. 
Mark? Yeah. Just going back to the textual uh, interpretation, the score yeah. has to be calibrated against two. Uh, B four, does four have to be calibrated against two? Uh, what do you mean by that? Meaning uh, the four is what is linked to me. Yeah. But the way I understood it is two is what is the author trying yeah. to mean by it. Yeah. So you need to do two first. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I have to make sure I stack up against. Yes. Because I could be wrong. I mean, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, very good point. Um, so <coughs> using these tools, uh, this helps us get from, okay, this look at what the Old Testament is to more of this, right? Yes, it's all these different works. There's a lot of different colors, a lot of different things going on. But ultimately, they actually all point to the same center, okay? So if you're using the right tools, you can see these things, okay? So hopefully you'll see that as we uh, study the, the very end of the Old Testament, the very end of the Hebrew Bible over the next few weeks. Any questions about this before we jump into Lamentations and Esther? Questions about interpretation, how I do interpretation, what I'm doing here in this class? Yeah? When did the misinterpretation happen uh, for the Pharisees? I mean, were they, was they, did, what did they I mean, did the misinterpretation happen like uh, before the Pharisees came, or did it just happen at that time during the intertestamental yeah. period? Because Christ yeah. kept on correcting these Pharisees. Like, yes. You misinterpreted it. Well, and they, I think um, a lot of it has to do with some of these things we're talking about here, some of these tools. Because um, uh, it's not just the Pharisees, right? It's the Sadducees. Now, you can point directly to the Sadducees issue, which was they didn't uphold the prophets and the writings to the same level as the Pentateuch. So um, um, that that's an issue that there's not clearly not nearly as much about the Messiah and who he's supposed to be um, just in the in the Pentateuch. Um, you have uh, other groups like the Essenes who um, that's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, you can cl see, clearly see from there they have additional writings. Um, that they consider just as elevated. And then, so there's all this discussion about two messiahs there. So they're not going to see Jesus as, you know, he's both the king and the priest. I don't think so, right? And they, they believe in two coming. Um, so um, now the, the Pharisees who, uh, again, is if you don't, if I've talked about this before, maybe I have, but they're, um, they're, it's kind of the, where you can kind of trace a line to rabbinic Judaism from the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the influence among the people. Um, the, the large section of um, um, uh, Judaism that returned from Babylon, they're all coming from this text tradition. So that's where Jesus is having the most conversations with because it's still somewhat inside baseball, right? You're still kind of in the same general uh, now, the issue that he consistently comes, brings back the Pharisees is that they've added to the text, right? And, of course, they have um, uh, the uh, Mishnah, and which then ends up in the Talmud. So they, uh, I don't think they would say that this is on the same level as Torah, but, um, but they cer certainly elevate it to uh, a status that, of where it shouldn't be. Um, and often, I think that um, this is a really great question. I could talk about this forever. Um, I mean, I think that, okay, what is, I think there's a text event issue for sure. I mean, I think there, 
talk they're you know they're organizing the 613 stipulations and they're you know then they go extra 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 on well, how do we interpret this 613 and not paying attention to the actual text itself in the way that the text presents the 613 right you've got at the very end of the Pentateuch Moses in Deuteronomy 30 he envisions a a covenant in the future that will not bring the same problems that they're having right then, right? The problems that they're having, which you can see in the Pentateuch, is that it doesn't really matter how many stipulations he gives them, God gives them, they still fail. There's an issue with the heart. And so what does Moses say in Deuteronomy 36? He says, in the future, he envisions a covenant in the future where the heart will be circumcised, right? So that's, um, again, I think it's, uh, it, it is an issue of interpretation, but it's the, the Pharisees focusing on certain things within the text, whereas Jesus is saying, what is the purpose of the overall, what is the compositional theological purpose of this text? He's trying to teach you that ultimately this is a hard issue. Uh, so that, that's the best way I would describe that, that issue. Yeah. When Paul told the Corinthians not to go beyond what's written, Um, you'll have to tell me what, uh, what passage that is. Uh, probably 4, chapter 4. First Corinthians 4? Yeah. I know he was talking to them in the context of their, you know, following different leaders, you know, that kind of as he's giving them his argument, he, he says that they're not to go beyond what's written. Yeah, so are, are you asking specifically about, is he speaking Old Testament? Is he speaking New Testament? Yeah, I'm just curious whether it was he talking about the Hebrew text or... Um, yeah, um, I want to stu study that uh, specifically because it's just been a while since I've been it's in Corinthians. Okay. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I want to think about that one a little bit. Um, and of course, it's all in this context of the authority of the apostles, right? He's right. an apostle. He's So there's, um, I definitely think we can see a, a chain of the apostolic authority of the gospel is what then makes it into the New Testament, right? The purpose of a testament, the collection, consolidation of these books is that these are recognized as the one you can trace back to the apostolic teaching, which is Jesus came and died, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Jesus came and died for our sins according to the scriptures, right? He's the Messiah, connected to the Old Testament. He came and died for our sins according to the scriptures. Um, so I think that that's probably what's what he's really speaking of here. So, yep. Uh, any other questions, comments? Okay. Uh, let's go to Lamentations and Esther. These are a couple of smaller books. Like I said, we'll go quickly through this. You might be... Um, 
wide-eyed at the idea of going through uh, two and a half pages in 20 minutes, but believe me, we've gone a lot faster and a lot of other things. So, um, uh, several weeks we've had five pages of, of notes to go through. Um, here we're just doing uh, these, these two and a half. Now, um, using all of these tools, again, you can see can see what's happening here. So let me let me go back to this. This is contextuality again, the ordering of passage. Now we're talking about here contextuality, ordering of the books, and the meaning of the Old Testament. Again, if they all if all the books have a theological purpose and a theological center, then you can order them and understand a larger story related to that center, right? Um, and that's what they did. They ordered them in this way, and so we can see a larger story unfolding. In the Pentateuch, which we studied last last year at this time, Adam and Eve sin, breaking the relationship they had with God. A seed of Abraham will renew this relationship, a seed from the line of Judah. This is all in the Pentateuch. The Mosaic Covenant provides temporary fulfillment, and, and we see that throughout the rest of this, whenever they do obey, um, when... Whenever they do successfully obey the Mosaic Covenant on a large scale as a nation, then they're blessed. Uh, but if they don't, then they are not. So uh, Mosaic Covenant provides temporary fulfillment, but is not a permanent solution because of the people's hearts. And then a prophet like Moses will come. That's in Deuteronomy as well. So then Joshua is the very next book. And the message of Joshua is that until the prophet comes, a meditation on the word is the example the leader gives us. Joshua is the example that we should follow. As we wait for the prophet, he, here's who we should try to be like. We should try to read the word, meditate on the word day and night as Joshua did. He was the example of leadership that we should follow. Um, after Joshua's death, there's now not just a sin problem, back here from the Pentateuch, but there's a lordship problem as well. There's a big void. The purpose of Judges, you see at the end of the book, is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the very last sentence of Judges. Okay, then Samuel comes along and presents a solution to this lordship problem. Solution to the lordship problem is a king from the line of David. Um, we have this prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, Davidic covenant. Then the kings comes along and gives us the example of all of these kings. Um, and the, the point of the kings is that the wrong leader not only provides the wrong example, but leads the people into further destruction. Uh, Isaiah then, I would say, is this one of the climaxes of the canon. The suffering servant is the answer. He not only solves the sin problem through sacrificial death, he also solves the leadership problem. He is a fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the suffering servant. Uh, then Jeremiah speaks about the new covenant that will come. Uh, the Davidic king and the new covenant will come after the exile. That's the purpose of Jeremiah. Ezekiel says that the new covenant is based in God's presence. That will be a renewal of the relationship between you and God, and his presence will be with you again. That's the point of Ezekiel, speaking about the new covenant. Uh, then the minor prophets... A lot of details, a lot of, you know, 12 different prophets, a lot of details about the Messiah, the New Covenant. Uh, restoration will come through the Messiah. And then uh, the Psalms, uh, Scripture leads us to righteousness in the Messiah. We saw 150 Psalms. You can really sum up the main point, though, in chapter 1 and 2, Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 is uh, righteousness comes through Scripture, 
And Psalm 2, that, that leads us, that scripture leads us to the Messiah. All right, so scripture leads us to the righteousness and the Messiah. We saw that pattern throughout Psalms, right? It was scripture, then Messiah, scripture, then Messiah, scripture, then Messiah. Um, and then uh, the wisdom books, which we've been studying the last few weeks, Job, Proverbs, uh, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and then these two we're going to do today. Uh, the point of this is that scripture leads us to righteousness in everyday life. The point of this is, Okay, as we wait for the prophet, again, we're still waiting for this prophet like Moses who's going to come again, this Messiah, this uh, king from the line of David. Um, as we wait for him, how do we live our everyday lives? This is what the wisdom material is all about. Okay, so let's jump in here to Lamentations and Esther. Um, oh. Okay, Lamentations. Here we go. Uh, Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. This has been affirmed by both uh, Jewish and Christian tradition. It's written around the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So you can see how this would have been a helpful, you know, it's very relevant, it's new, it's, it was used in the exile, um, and because it was written by Jeremiah, it speaks to these things, okay? So uh, the book is um, a book of laments. Laments are poetic expression of grief. That's why they're called Lamentations, because it's a book of laments. We saw some of the laments in the Psalms, uh, but that's what these are. They're uh, poetic expressions of grief. Okay, so let's jump in here. Um, Lamentations <coughs> 1 and 2. Lamentations reflects on the fall of Jerusalem by first describing the city's sorrows. That's the first blank there. City's sorrows. It is lonely, and its people have gone into exile. So um, we have, uh, if you remember, we talked about this a little bit. It's like we have this kind of narrative of the Hebrew, you know, the Jewish people, what's happened to them, all the way up here to the kings where they were exiled. Now we have this poetic interlude, which is, you know, prophecy, poetry, all this kind of stuff. And, and that's what we've been in for a while, starting with Isaiah. Um, so here towards the end of the poetic interlude, we're reminded of where the narration left off. We're reminded back here of where we stopped the story, which is back here in Kings. They went into exile. Uh, this is the state that they're in. They're in exile. Uh, its government has been overthrown, and it has fallen astonishingly. The author laments about what its enemies have done and what God has allowed. People groan in anguish and admit that they have rebelled against his command. Uh, Lamentations is consistent with earlier texts which state that the destruction of Jerusalem was ordained by God and was just punishment for Israel's behavior. Punishment is the blank there. Just punishment for Israel's behavior. So the reader um, doesn't think that this is unjust, right? The punishment is just. We're reminded of their sin here. Uh, verse 5. 
Uh, her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Right? This is a just punishment. Next, the author discusses God's anger over Israel's behavior. God has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. The author even says that God has become like an enemy himself. So not, he's not just allowing an enemy to do, uh, to do destruction to the people. He has become the enemy. That's the way it's described here. This has resulted in the destruction of the temple and the walls of the city. Uh, punishment has, has come to the covenant breakers just as Deuteronomy 27 through 28 foresaw. Deuteronomy, I mean, that's a, a lot of reason why, a lot of the reason why his, uh, critical scholars, liberal scholars, uh, suggest that uh, Deuteronomy was written much later is because the end of Deuteronomy so perfectly illustrates exactly what happens to the people uh, when they disobey. Right? Mm -hmm. um, doesn't mean it happened later. It's just it's a prophetic um, mm -hmm. illustration. This will happen if you disobey. Deuteronomy 27, 28. Uh, grief and de depression have replaced normal religious practice in the lives of the people. As in, in, as in Jeremiah, the author blames the prophets for their deceit. Uh, the people are encouraged to repent. And, quote, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Okay, three through five. This will take us to the end of the book. Uh, the author proceeds to identify himself with Jerusalem. That's the first point there. Because they have both seen affliction. Uh, he and the people have become desolate and, quote, his soul has been rejected from peace. Yet he expresses hope in God because his compassions never fail. That's verse 22, chapter 3 there. He chooses to wait patiently and quietly for the salvation of the Lord. After all, God does not afflict willingly. God has angrily brought punishment to the people, but will one day bring life. Uh, this is really powerful passage. Could I get a volunteer to read chapter 3 of Lamentations, verses 25 through 32. Eight verses there. Do I have a brave volunteer? Oh, Gerald? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have it highlighted. You're the only one looking at me. Okay, Lamentations 3, 25 through 32. Yeah. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to, the, to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. That was the 33. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. 
Uh, so there's still hope based in the Davidic promises, right? That's, that's the message here. The message of redemption, that's the blank there, the message of redemption for the remnant has already been expressed in the canon. There's some references there. He will also bring punishment to their enemies. But this time has not yet come, as the author describes a people who have not returned to God. Even babies of Jerusalem die because of the sin of the people. That's the blank there. Because the sin of the people is greater than the sin of Sodom. That's quite a, quite a charge. Uh, everyone experiences the affliction, including the kings, prophets, and priests. The presence of the Lord has scattered them. Verse 22, chapter 4. The punishment for your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So there's an anticipation of the end of exile here uh, amongst this, these laments. Okay. So Lamentations ends with a community lament. It's chapter 5. A community lament. A prayer of the people for mercy. The people point to the difficulty of their circumstances and cry out for help. They describe in detail what their enemies have done. They say, woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. They confess God's eternal rule. And ask for restoration. They ask him to, quote, renew our days as of old. So the book begins with lament, but ends with repentance here at the end. So in other words, you can think of this whole book as an appropriate response. Right? It begins with lament, but at the end, there's repentance. Um, so significance. Lamentation shows us that it is not too late to restore relationship with God. Punishment has come, but a return to the land and to God is, protected, is predicted. We must not be afraid to enter or reestablish our relationship with God as he intended. Um, so for discussion, have you ever thought that God was unwilling to forgive you? Have you ever thought uh, you couldn't return to him after being away? What does Lamentations tell us about God's compassion in his plan for you. Any thoughts here? Or about Lamentations in general? Yeah. Well, since becoming a Christian, the last two would be a no and a no. Yeah. I mean, it's almost the basic tenet. It's almost like you're building up this big pile of sins, and then one day you go, I can't carry it, and so the Lord takes it. And as I go along, like this morning he's talking, I keep picking up these little bags and carrying them along, and he keeps taking them and going, give me that. You know, and, and uh, you know, so you, the last two, it's like, no, nah, I got rid of the big pile. He can get rid of the ones that I keep collecting, and hopefully they keep getting smaller. Not so much for myself, but just about everybody I witness to at work, that's what they'll tell me. How can God actually forgive you for what I've done? Yeah, right. right. 
you have a question. When, when this is at the fall of Jerusalem, is there like a difference how to read the fall as opposed <clears throat> to the destruction? No, I wouldn't say so. I think prophetically they're similar. Because it seems to me like I've been kind of hung up in Ezekiel. He's waiting on this guy to come back and tell him that it's destroyed. Mm -hmm. And it's like, does that mean that this is slightly different from that? Uh, I, largely, I wouldn't say so. I'd say they have the same general purpose. Okay. Yeah, fall, destruction, but then, like here, um, there's hope, right? There's hope even at the end of Second Kings, we see um, Jehoiakim, the, the, in the line of David, he's released from prison and he starts eating with, with the king. Because so. the fall was sort of Babylonians came, took all the people and hauled them away. And yeah. It's almost like later on they came back and got mad at him and tore it down. Yeah, but I think Prophetically, they all kind of have. It's, okay. I, I think it's part of the same general thing. That's what I would, I would think. But, all right, anybody else? Lamentations. God's compassion are new every morning. Mm -hmm. That's what it tells us. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. Let's finish up. Let's move to Esther here. <coughs> Uh, Esther, who wrote Esther? Boy, we don't know. <laughs> uh, books are known. Um, written sometime between 464 and 330 BC, uh, most likely before 400, and describes events from earlier in the 5th century. Um, so, uh, we're talking about the rule of King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. Um, he ruled from 486 to 465. So um, this is Persia, right? The setting is Persia. This is the group that was in charge, the nation that was in charge at the time uh, because they took control of Babylon and its inhabitants. Um, this was Cyrus, who was the leader in 539 BC. So 539 BC, Cyrus came and, um, you know, took over to, you know, again, it's these great empires that are uh, taking over and occupying at different times, right? It's Babylon, then it's Persia, then it becomes Alexander the Great, and, and then eventually Rome, right? So it's, um, that's what, that's the setting here, is that Persia is in charge, and King Xerxes uh, is, uh, in, so this is setting in Persia during the exile. That's where we're talking about Esther taking place. So King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, the king of Persia, reigned over 127 provinces. So he had a lot of power, is the point. Uh, during this reign, he, gave a he gives a banquet filled with lavish materials and drinks of many kinds. His wife, Queen Vashti, also gives a banquet. During his banquet, he sends for his queen so that all the people may there may see her beauty. She refuses, and he becomes very angry. At his advisor's recommendation, he decides to have Vashti replaced as queen. Uh, he even issues an edict that, quote, all women will give an hour to their husbands. So it's kind of a little humorous. Again, these authors are sometimes ironic and humorous and all kinds of things. So... Um, 
uh, overseers in the provinces of the kingdom gather many young women and bring them to Hegai, the king's eunuch. Uh, so a eunuch would be a servant in charge of the women. Most likely he's castrated. Um, that's why he's called a eunuch here. Um, uh, the author introduces a Jew named Mordecai. Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. And his beautiful niece, that's the blank there, beautiful niece Esther, whom he had raised. Esther is taken into the custody of Haggai like the rest of the women, though she does not reveal that she is a Jew. After preparing for many months, Esther gets her turn to go before the king. The king chooses Esther to be the queen and throws a banquet in her honor. She, she still does not tell anyone she is a Jew. Mordecai enters the picture again, informing the king through Esther about an attempt to take his life, i.e. The king's, the king's life. Take his life is the blank there. One of the king's officials, Haman, uh, introduce evil character here. Uh, one of the king's officials, Haman, is promoted and subsequently has a conflict with Mordecai. Uh, because Mordecai will not bow to Haman. Uh, he decides to punish the Jews in the land. Uh, he receives permission from King Ahasuerus to kill, kill them, the Jews, and issues a decree that goes out over all the land, all over the land. Uh, Mordecai asks for Esther's help, that she might plead with the king for the Jews. Um, it's interesting, uh, 414, he has a really great attitude about providence here. Um, so I encourage you to read that. Uh, believes it will come, he says, this will come from another place if you don't. Right? God's providence will come somewhere, from some source, but he does appeal to her to help. Uh, her position is God's strategic position for her, that she might be used to preserve the remnant living in Persia. What? Uh, living in Persia is the blank there. Much like Joseph did in Egypt previously. Esther fears the law, which provides anyone to come before the king in the inner court. Uh, what did I say? Provides. Ah. Uh, what I'm doing there. Esther fears the law, which forbids anyone to come before the king in the inner court. Uh, the person who does the, does is to be put to death. Still, she decides to do it, asking Mordecai to pray and saying, if I perish, I perish. Great example of faith there. Uh, Esther 5.10 uh, 5 through 10, Esther appears in the king's court in her royal robes. The king asks what is troubling her. She asks that he and Haman join her at a banquet. Meanwhile, Haman is again angered by Mordecai and decides to have a gallows built so that he may be hanged on it. So this adds to the drama here. 
Esther has to face and the courage she has to display here because Mordecai's about to die. The king is unable to sleep, so he has the books, book of records read to him. He finds through this reading that it was Mordecai who had informed Esther about the attempt on the king's life. He decides to honor Mordecai, making Haman lead him on horseback through the city. So again, the irony and the humor coming here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's kind of how you would honor a king, and then he has to do this here. Um, it's not unlike Balaam in, in Numbers 23 through 24. Uh, Balak hires him to curse Israel, and then he blesses them. I mean, that's I kind of see it similar to the irony there. Um, so as at Esther's banquet, she appeals to the king for the lives of her and her people. The king becomes angry with Haman and has him hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. King Ahasuerus promotes Mordecai to Haman's position and allows him to send a letter to all the provinces, giving all the Jews to write to defend themselves. This is uh, chapter 9, verse 1. They had, had to do this because there was already some anger stirred up right, by, by Haman. So they do, and some in the kingdom even become Jews in the process. Non-Jews had long been accepted into the faith at this time. Many enemies of the Jews die at the hands of the Jews. Uh, the celebration is instituted. That should be instituted. I don't know what it says there. It should be instituted to remember these events and God's deliverance of the Jews even in exile. They called these great days of memorial Purim. Uh, Esther ends with the author noting that Mordecai became a great name among the Jews. So real quickly, we don't have time to uh, open it up, but just to take with you this week, Esther shows that God will always love and look after his people. It's important to remember that his presence is with you regardless of your circumstances. Have you ever felt completely alone? How does God's help? Do the people in Esther provide comfort for you in uncomfortable or unfamiliar situations? Is there any situation or place that God will not accompany you if you're living in his will? This, this book um, took a little bit of time to make it into the writings and the collection and the readings and the scrolls and all. It took a little bit more time because God's name is not in it. Right? It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't have God's name in it. But you can clearly see it's about God's providential care. right? Um, and the message in it became so powerful as it continued to be read that it was, it was obvious to, to those in the synagogues that this was authoritative. It was from God. So, um, Yeah, that's it. So next week is Daniel. Uh, yeah, that's going to be fun. So see you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Mark.